Good morning. I'm reading from Acts chapter 6 and 7. The word of God continued to spread. The numbers of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Sicilia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly, secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses, he said. This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these things so? And Stephen replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the, holy, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights reads as follows. Everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion. This right includes freedom to change religion or belief and freedom either alone or in community with others and in public or private to manifest their religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship and observance. And yet, persecution remains a very real and present reality for many Christians and also many people of other faiths around the world. I can still remember my visit to Bucharest in Romania back in about the year 2000. And we went to stand at that place on the street that was directly above the underground cell where the Romanian pastor and long-term prisoner, Richard Wurmbrandt, was imprisoned and tortured during the Cold War years of the 1950s and 1960s. On his release, he inspired the founding of Release International, uh, which alongside other organizations uh, such as Forum 18, seeks to highlight the plight of persecuted Christians 
and other minorities around the world. Their websites offer a depressing and distressing picture of international persecution from Islamic State in the Middle East to Boko Haram terrorists in Nigeria to Hindu extremists in India. Countries where freedom of religion is officially restricted are many and include places that I didn't realize until I checked this week had such restrictions. So for example, I discovered this week about Azerbaijan where prisoners of conscience are jailed and tortured for exercising freedom of religion and belief. And I discovered about Tajikistan, where there is a ban on and punishments for all exercise of freedom of religion or belief without state permission. Together with severe limitations on numbers of mosques, the jailing of Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses and Protestant prisoners of conscience on alleged extremism charges. It's not just Christians who are persecuted for their faith and belief. I could go on citing many further examples. Many of us will remember the visit of Reverend Sampson from the Kachin Baptist Convention in Myanmar, Burma, who came to speak at Bloomsbury in 2018. Just this week, I received uh, an email update from him which I will ask Libby to circulate round in the news email for you to read in full this week. But in it, he gives an update on the current and very distressing situation in Burma, as I say, also known as Myanmar, following the recent coup. And I'd just like to read a little bit of what he says. Um, the Kachin Baptist Convention in Myanmar has, despite oppressions from the majority and dictatorship's tyranny, grown into a religious institution with over 400,000 members 427 churches and 19 associations, and consistently stands on the side of civilians and justice, according to the Bible's teaching. He goes on, under the rule of militarized dictatorship, the civilians of Burma, Myanmar are denied all fundamental human rights as stated by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. <coughs> For instance, the citizens of Myanmar, he says, live in fear of the unknown future of being arrested or tortured on a daily basis. The citizens of Myanmar are denied ownership of a property, even if they are entitled to own it. The citizens of Myanmar are banned to know the truth via information blackout. Moreover, any religious organizations faces discrimination and oppression if an individual religious organization does not speak out in favor of the armed forces of Myanmar. He movingly describes the armed forces as a terrorist organization. And he concludes his letter with a request for us. He says, in this painful and traumatized situation, KBC would like to request humbly and earnestly for worldwide Christian brothers and sisters support in the following matters. To support us with most effective and impactful prayer service. To help us by advocating freedom from dictatorship to assist by voicing up to lift up information blackout in Myanmar. Most importantly, please help us uprooting dictatorship on Myanmar with any possible strategy available. As you have prayed for us, your Christian brothers and sisters from Myanmar pray for all of you to be for God's glory. May God's blessing be upon us all. So that was from Reverend Samson, who was here a couple of years ago. And I know also many of us know Dr. Sasa, who is involved uh, now very politically, uh, publicly in uh, Myanmar as well. 
Those of us who live in the relatively tolerant country of the United Kingdom can sometimes, I think, struggle to realise the horrific truth that persecution on religious grounds is a daily reality for so many of our sisters and brothers in Christ around the world and so many of our wider brothers and sisters uh, in other religious traditions. And yet this is the background against which much of the New Testament was written. When we read of Stephen being stoned to death or Paul uh, facing beatings and floggings or John of Revelation speaking of hardship and martyrdom, we need to realise that for so many of those in the early church, the threat of imprisonment and death for their faith was very much a reality. And we therefore need to read the stories that we are told in the New Testament against this background in order to appreciate the context of what we're hearing. And so we come to the story of the stoning to death of Stephen, one of the first converts to Christianity. And something which fascinates me in this story from the book of Acts is what happens to Stephen as he is about to be stoned to death. Did you notice it? It was something very strange indeed. Something which has never happened to me and something which I would be surprised if it had happened to anyone else here this morning, although I, I could be wrong about that. The strange thing that happened to Stephen was that as he faced the moment of his death, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and saw heaven opened and Jesus, who is referred to in the account of this event as the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. In other words, just before Stephen was called upon to make the ultimate sacrifice, just before he had to remain faithful unto death, he had a vision of heaven in which he saw God seated on the heavenly throne with Jesus standing alongside him. Now, strange though this vision is, it is not unique either. The author of the book of Revelation reports a very similar experience. The book of Revelation was originally written to Christians living in the seven cities of Asia Minor at the heart of the Roman Empire, written by a pastor called John who was himself imprisoned for his faith. And only a few years before it was written, the people he was writing to had been subjected to terrible persecutions, with the Emperor Nero taking Christians, tying them to stakes and setting them on fire to light his gardens or throwing them to wild animals in the amphitheater. And so it was in that context that we get another vision of heaven in a context of martyrdom and persecution. Listen to this. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on an island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony to Jesus. I was saying, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day when I heard a behind me a loud voice with a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His hair and his head were as white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And he said to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. 
So do you see the similarity between the vision Stephen received um, just before he was stoned to death and the one which John speaks about in this context of persecution? In both these visions, heaven is opened and Jesus, described as the Son of Man in both visions, is seen standing in glory. Now, why is this, I wonder? What is it about a vision of Jesus standing in heaven that is so appropriate to a context of extreme difficulty? Well, I think the answer has something to do with the events of the Easter weekend. It's no coincidence that this passage of the stoning of Stephen comes in the lectionary just a couple of weeks after Easter. The Gospels, you see, tell us that Jesus was himself a victim of torture and was murdered for no crime other than an accusation of blasphemy. And the similarity between Jesus' death and the struggles faced today by those around the world who are facing imprisonment on charges of so-called blasphemy is obvious, as is the similarity between his experience of torture and death on Good Friday and the experience of Stephen in the Book of Acts and those uh, of John of Patmos's churches who had suffered under Nero. And the point of the visions seems to be this. It is providing heaven's perspective on the earthly situation. From the point of view of those living on the earth, it really can seem on occasions as if all is lost. From the point of view of the person facing persecution and martyrdom, it can seem as if God has lost all power and that the forces of evil in the world are absolutely in charge. From the point of view of those living on the earth, it can feel as if Jesus has abandoned his followers to a terrible fate at the hands of those who want to kill them. But it is at this point when the earthly perspective can seem so bleak that the heavenly perspective comes as a gift from God. Because when the earth is seen from the viewpoint of heaven, things appear very different. When seen from heaven's point of view, all is not lost. God has not lost power and evil is not ultimately in charge. This is the significance of the vision of God seated on the heavenly throne as Lord of the universe. Jesus, this vision says, has not abandoned his followers. Rather, he is seen standing in glory in heaven as true king over the earth. Because you see, appearances can be very deceptive. And just as the crucifixion of Jesus was not defeat, but actually opened the door to victory, with the power of death being broken at the resurrection, so too the persecution and martyrdom of Jesus' followers in the first century or the 21st century is not, in the end, defeat. It is rather the faithful witness which points the world to Christ. It is no coincidence that history has shown the church grows when it is under persecution. From the earliest years of the Christian faith, as we find them in the book of Acts and Paul's letters, to communist China in the post-war period of the 20th century, to the current situation facing Reverend Sampson and Dr. Sasa in Myanmar. When the church follows its Lord in offering faithful witness unto death, others respond to that witness and rise up and take their place. The terrible, frightening, but glorious truth 
is that the good news of the love of God for all people is spread not through yet another evangelistic project, but through the simple faithful witness of those who take up their crosses and follow Jesus without compromise. In the book of Revelation, John realizes this and he describes it as something that is both sweet and bitter. It is sweet in the mouth because it is the proclamation of the gospel, but it is bitter in the stomach because it makes you sick at the cost. It's this realization that Jesus has not gone. That through his suffering on the cross, he is in a very real and present sense, united with those who face lives of suffering. And that through the vision of him ascended and glorified, the path is open to those who would follow him through death. It is this realization that gives the courage to remain faithful even in the face of persecution. Did you notice Reverend Sampson, in the midst of asking us to pray for him, said that he would pray for us? So what's all this visionary stuff about? Well, it comes from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament. And if we rewind back there into the story of Daniel, thrown into the lion's den for refusing to worship King Nebuchadnezzar, well, we find Daniel under threat of losing his life when he too receives a vision, which by now I'm sure is starting to sound a bit familiar to us. This is Daniel chapter seven. As I watched, thrones were set in place and an ancient one took his throne and his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood attending him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And as I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Daniel, like John, like Stephen, has a vision of heaven opened and sees the Son of Man, one like a human being, standing in glory. And like them, this vision is granted at precisely that point in his life where he might most be tempted to think that God has abandoned him. After all, the king of Babylon in those days seemed all-powerful, and from an earthly perspective, it seems there was nothing anyone could do to oppose him. But the vision which Daniel has of the Son of Man as king of an everlasting kingdom is one which puts into heavenly perspective any power the earthly king in Babylon might have. The message for Daniel is the same as the one we have met already. From an earthly perspective, it can appear as if evil is winning. But when seen from heaven's perspective, God is very far from powerless and is in truth the almighty one enthroned above all earthly powers. So what might this say to us? Particularly to those of us who are not perhaps given to visions of glory. I'm not. 
Well, as I've said, we who live in this country at this time don't face the same levels of persecution that others around the world face on a daily basis. I'm not saying we have it all easy, of course we don't. We may not be facing imprisonment, torture and death for no greater crime than going to our church. But nonetheless, we do all have our own share of problems which might tempt us to doubt that God is powerful. We face situations in our lives where from an earthly perspective it can certainly appear as if Jesus has lost power. At a local level, we may well ask the question of why it is so many people in the area around this church are not able to hear the good news of life and love that comes through a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. And it can appear to us sometimes as if we might as well give up trying to bear faithful witness to the love of God because people don't listen and nothing ever changes. Or more widely, we might ask the question of why it is that there is still so much evil happening in the world. Why bad things happen to good people on a daily basis. We educate ourselves. We stand in solidarity with those who are persecuted around the world. We hear stories from Myanmar and we think, what is this about? It can appear to us sometimes as if we might as well just give up praying for the world, because what is the point when things remain the same? Or more personally, we might ask questions of why it is that we fail to overcome our sinful human natures and we carry on doing and saying things that we know we shouldn't. It can appear to us sometimes as if we might as well just give up trying to follow Jesus because nothing is ever going to change. And well, yes, the temptation to give up is very real. And the motivation to press on with following Christ, Christ in the face of difficulty and discouragement can seem very lacking. And it is to us, as we face our own doubts and difficulties, that Stephen and John and Daniel's visions come with renewed power. If we can learn from them to see the earth as heaven sees it, to see our own lives as heaven sees us. To realise that the spirit of the risen Christ is vital and active in the world and that God's power is greater than any earthly power. Then maybe we, like them, like so many before us, can receive from that vision the courage, the determination and the perspective that we need to carry on, to fight the good fight, to endure and to overcome. To those of us who sometimes want to give it all up, the risen Christ comes in both suffering and power, to be with us in difficulty, to renew our strength and to give us afresh the gift of the Holy Spirit who sustains us and guides us and points us to the one who was dead but is alive forevermore. Amen. So I'm going to invite our panellists up, so Andrea and Martin are joining me on the, um, in the building, on the stage. And Jeff, I believe, is joining us from online. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. It's good to, good to have you with us. Um, so we're going to share and have an all chat, like we have been doing. Um, and then I'm going to ask Simon, because I, I can't see the text of the chat from here, to share if there's anything in the chat. And then we're going to ask those of you who are sat in the building if you've got anything else you want to add. So does anyone have any initial thoughts this morning? Well, 
Different. Um, it's weird. Um, I think Simon said something about, um, well, there are two things. He said something about the church growing under persecution, which is something I've heard my whole life. But then, isn't it that, that a church that grows is persecuted? And like there wouldn't be anything to persecute if the church wasn't growing? Like a chicken and egg type thing. Yeah. Like, is it growing? Is it growing because it's being persecuted or is it persecuted because, because it's growing and therefore active and doing something? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So if you're not being persecuted, does that mean that you're not being active and growing? Not being a witness? I wouldn't go that way. No. <laughs> Jeff Martin, any thoughts? I, I, I was struck by a contrast. The... 20th century tends to see Jesus with us in, in suffering, with us, hanging on the wire in no man's land at the Somme, for instance. This contrasts with Jesus seen at the right hand of God, above and separate, but still engaged. So I said that last bit again, Jeff. It's a bit echoey in the building. I missed that last bit. Oh, uh, it, the, the other contrast is that you see Jesus at the right hand of God, above, separate, but still engaged. So the kind of the, the separated and engaged, the now and not yet, the here, but not quite here. But here and somewhere else at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Whereas 20th century tends to see him continually engaged, actually mm. suffering all the time. Whereas once you put him up in heaven or next to God, he's not suffering anymore. There's like a separation between the two. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Thank you. Martin, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. I, um, made me feel a little bit old, partly because when you, Simon uh, mentioned uh, Richard, um, my mind went back to being a young teenager and belonging to an organization called Christian Mission to the Communist World. And um, Richard Wimbaugh was a very much um, a part of that, I think, organization and indeed inspiration. And I guess as a teenager, I um, kind of then connect with a, a very passionate evangelical Martin as I was uh, of that time. And trusting that I would have a faith that would, if needed, to survive kind of persecution, which looking back is very grandiose kind of thinking. A little bit later on, a few decades later on, um, I'm, yeah, it, it's kind of left me with that thinking that I feel as if in myself, how faith rise, I know less and yet I've learned to trust more. And in regards to kind of this past year, and I, you know, I, I've struggled faith-wise, and I recognize that, especially in listening and thinking about other, world, other people worldwide, what they're going through, it, it feels like nothing. And yet to hold on to the vision of heaven, to hold on to the rhythm of the resurrection, does involve trust. And I don't think I always have that. And yet there are those moments 
when it does come through. Yeah, thank you. I think, yeah, sort of the, the younger, more zealous evangelical Christian. I remember I was like, I, this is I, a trait I see a lot within um, the Western church. Of, I joked about it with Andrea, the idea of like, well, if you're not being persecuted, are you actually really doing God's will? I remember listening to a sermon of someone who had gone and done an overseas mission in a way that I would argue possibly was quite problematic and they had met persecution. So this to them was an affirmation that they were doing the right thing. And I think often in the Western church, we like to relate ourselves to the persecuted within scripture or within the world. And we see ourselves as the victim and often we're the ones that hold power in a situation. Um, and when you hold power, but you don't want to admit that, it's quite, it can be quite difficult to see what Simon was talking about, like that glory, the resurrection, the, the what's next. Um, and to trust, or at least trust in a way that's authentic. Yeah, absolutely. That that, that authentic trust. Um, that that I I struggle with. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. Well, as I guess this is my last thought before we can probably go to the chat. Um, as someone growing in Romania after communism, you know, yeah, um, after that communist period, so I knew nothing of that. I grew up in a Baptist church that had known that. Um, I'm not sure I like that. I mean, they still had that self-righteous feeling that they're the ones who hold the truth hmm. and everyone who was persecuting them was a sinner who was going to hell. So I think, yeah, there was a lot of therapy involved after, <laughs> afterwards. I, I it's very dangerous to go to the other side. Yeah. Jeff, do you have anything else to add before we go to the chat? Uh, I'll put things in the chat, but what I really wanted to say from that is we have a history of being dissenters. That's the Baptist history. Um, but what we don't necessarily have quite as much is um, a sense of oneness with people with other views of dissent. So we are one part of a community of dissenters that are looking to struggle to find a future. Um, and there are other dissenters of different types who are struggling to find a future. And the calling is to debate with them and work out a future for the whole uh, world, essentially. So there are a lot of authoritarian regimes that have a vision of their future. But we need to de discuss and debate and mm, violently overthrow some of them. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Simon, can you share from the chat? Yeah, so we've got a couple of uh, comments that I'm gonna read from the chat. There's one from Jeff, but I think he's kind of um, brought his own piece already. Um, Liz says, perspective is so important for individuals, for a church, for good mental health. How you view things is often key. Sometimes feelings and thoughts can be deceptive and our version of the truth might not be the only way of viewing things. Learning to step back and consider other ways of viewing things can really change things personally and as a church. For example, we can think 
sorry, it just moved on as I was talking. For example, we, we can think we are failing, but maybe we are not seeing the whole picture. A church struggling can be seen as a failure. A person struggling can be seen as a failure, but is it? Is that what God sees? And then Micah says, we ought also remember the way in which true religion defies the civil religion we saw on display yesterday in Prince Philip's funeral. What does it mean to resist this sort of civil religion that upholds the righteousness of power? We must instead stand with those who have no power. The persecuted church is also here in the UK in Jesus in black and female bodies. Uh, I think I'll, those two will be the ones to bring from this at the moment. Those of you who are sat here with us this morning in the building, are there any burning thoughts that have... Duncan, if you say it and then I'll, I'll repeat it back. So Duncan was just sharing about the debate in the Commons that's happening this week about the persecution that's happening to minorities in China and that so far the British response has been a military one to both send an aircraft carrier there and up military, uh, no, nuclear um, warheads directed specifically at China. I think Micah's point is interesting about the idea that we are to, he specifically said that we are to stand with those that are being persecuted in a recognition that most of us hold power and hold privilege, but also to recognize those that are persecuted in some way. I, when Simon was talking, I was thinking about um, a conversation I'd had this week about those of us that have faced um, some level of sexism or racism or oppression are used to accommodating others and used to stepping out of the way often as a self-preservation thing. And how can those of us that do hold intersections of privilege make sure that people like that don't have to step out of the way, don't have to move themselves so that they're not hurt? And is that a response? If we see persecution, how should we respond to that? I'm gonna move us on now. As I make these prayers, I invite you to make your prayers the people who are on your hearts and on your minds on this day. Creator God, you fill all things with the fullness and hope that we can never comprehend. Thank you for leading this community into a season of provoking and nurturing faith, where we seek to expand our love for you, each other, and those who we come into contact with. We pray that you will continue to help us manage times of understandable cynicism, denial, fear, and despair. Help us have the courage to awaken to greater truth, greater humility, and greater care for one another. May we place our hope in what matters and what lasts, trusting in your eternal presence and love. Listen to our heart's longings for the healing of our suffering world. We hold in mind all those who face persecution prison and death for their faith. 
May moments of unexpected serenity surprise them this day. We pray for all those who grieve, for those who are managing the initial shock of loss and those who are further along their grief journey and continue to hold the pain of missing a loved one's physical presence. We think of the young people and young adults who we know who will be preparing for exams. This year will have been chaotic. And yet we ask that in their young lives, they can remain grounded and find optimism for their futures. We also thank you for the educators who have put in the extra hours to teach in these difficult times and can continue to strengthen those who are tired and struggle with the workload placed upon them. We hold in mind those members of this congregation who need our prayers and think of particularly Chris Green and others who have ongoing health concerns. We also pray for our leadership team as they continue to guide us through these uncertain and difficult times. Knowing God that you are hearing us better than I am speaking, we offer these prayers in all the holy names of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Martin. Let us say the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.